All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 4, if you would. We continue in uh, chapter 4 from this morning. We'll start in verse number 13. Acts chapter 4, verse number 13, we will read from verse 13 down to verse number 22. All right, when you find your place there, the Bible says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, now this is referring to the council of the high priest and his family, the elders, the scribes, the rulers, etc., uh, this is, uh, they've been arrested, they've been in jail overnight, and now they, they have been examined as to how this uh, lame man, who is no longer lame, uh, has been healed. And so this is speaking of the, the, uh, the council here. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all the men, all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. All right, let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you, first of all, for your word. Thank you for the truth in your word as we uh, look at this narrative of uh, the great things that you did in the, uh, in the early church. Lord, we, we want to be and pattern our church after this pattern that you've given to us in your word and pattern ourselves after these uh, exemplary Christians that you've uh, highlighted in the scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would help your people this evening. And uh, Lord, just speak through me to help, help each person with their Uh, various needs, and uh, wherever they are spiritually, whatever spiritual needs they might have, Lord, you know how to fill those things and speak to them on a personal level. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, the name of Christ would be exalted, even as we read of the name of Christ in this, uh, this council did not even want to speak your name. Uh, But Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified among us, that we would be able to boldly Tell others of your name. Lord, give us that burden to tell other people of Jesus, that it would not be a passive kind of uh, neglect, but, Lord, we would ser- take, take that responsibility seriously, not only to speak your word, but also to live it out in such a way that complements your word. 
So, Lord, guide us and, and direct us, Lord. We commit this time to you in these scriptures that we read. We pray that you'd use them for your honor and glory in the way you see fit here this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have Peter and, uh, Peter and John, and as we learned this morning, it wasn't just Peter and John. <coughs> Excuse me. There was uh, apparently this recently healed lame man also was among them, and had though he had just been healed and apparently just believed in Christ, uh, he is also finds himself also in jail with them. And uh, I, I don't, as you try to read between the lines, because many things in the scripture aren't directly stated, so you kind of read between the lines to try to see what's happening. It doesn't appear that the the council recognizes the apostles. Even though we're only about 50 days, a little more than 50 days after the Lord's crucifixion. So this has only been a little over a month. But as we learned this morning, these apostles would not have had access to these, these, this council except for this event. And so it's, it's very likely that maybe this council had never actually met Peter and John in person. Because, of course, at the, at the mock trial of Christ, it was only Christ there. And the rest, they, they had all fled and forsook him, uh, the Lord, that is. So, uh, so they don't recognize these, uh, these apostles, Peter and John. And uh, up to this point, basically up until Pentecost, they've been, they've been basically in hiding. I say hiding. They were really in hiding before the resurrection. But then they've been waiting. They were waiting after the Lord's resurrection for those 10 days, right? So they hadn't really been public until Pentecost. <clears throat> and so what we see here in verse number 13 is I want you to note what it was that the, the, uh, the council here recognized. They recognized the boldness of Peter and John. And it wasn't just boldness. Look at verse 13, if you would. <clears throat> Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, comma, and, you notice that? And perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Now, the problem is in verse 13, I have heard this verse used to defend the idea of intentionally remaining ignorant. Uh, because it says unlearned and ignorant, I've heard people use it to say, well, you know, there's no use in really, you know, learning things and being smart and increasing in knowledge and intelligence. That is not what is happening here. In fact, if you really consider what they're saying, think about who's speaking. Think about who's, who's making this observation and think about these apostles. Yes, as we saw this morning, Peter and John were common men. That's, that's a fantastic truth. Not all of the disciples, not all of the apostles were the, were were Paul's and Saul's of Tarsus. All the apostles were not well-learned. In fact, most of them weren't. They were not men that, that were extremely educated. And for, these, uh, for this council, these people would have definitely been looked down upon because they considered themselves being scribes, people well-versed in probably several languages. They knew the Hebrew Scriptures and could read it and, and knew all the ins and outs of it. And they had been to the schools that had that, the, the learning that was... Uh, of reputation in that time, and none of these had. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself had not either. They were, they were astonished by the Lord himself because he appeared when, when he spoke to be someone that knew what he was talking about, and he spoke boldly, but they knew that he had never learned these things in the schools that everybody 
everybody recognized in that time. So this is what it means <coughs> that they were unlearned and ignorant. It doesn't mean that they were, they were buffoons, that they didn't know what they were talking about. In fact, they had been in a school for three and a half years with the Lord. Remember that? They had been disciples of the Lord. It's just that they were unlearned as it, as it relates to the schools that were recognized by this council, which isn't, probably isn't saying a whole lot. But notice what they, what they, what they had here. They had boldness, and their boldness was recognized, but the boldness was only recognized in conjunction with the perception of ignorance. So they had boldness. They saw the boldness of Peter and John in verse 13 and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant. Here's the thing. The fact of their being unlearned and ignorant, and again, this is not the Lord's absolute statement of their intelligence. This is the way they were perceived by the council, right? The fact that they were perceived as unlearned and ignorant actually highlighted their boldness. It brought something, it put something in stark relief that might have been hidden had they not, had they not been ignorant. In other words, for instance, when you, when you, when you uh, talk to someone that, for instance, you talk to a physician, a physician is a man of learning, right? A lawyer. Lawyers are people of learning. They have juris doctors, doctorate degrees. All right, you, when you, when you uh, talk to someone like Brother Lester, he's probably listening, he's probably going to roll his eyes at me. Dr. Baruch. When you talk to someone that has learning, oftentimes they, they have a persona that is, very, that is bold, that is very assertive because of that learning has put them in such a, a place where other people show them honor, and so they kind of assert themselves in that way. But here you have common men asserting themselves in such a way that it was so stark that it was noticed. It was noticed. Now, here's what I want you to understand. God used their ignorance and lack of formal learning actually for good. It's not that God used them in spite of their ignorance, in spite of their lack of education that would be recognized by the world. God, it's not that if they had it, you know, they were, they were deficient. And, you know, if, if they had just learned a little bit more, God could have used them more. Oh, no, no, no. The reverse. The fact that they were unlearned and ignorant and perceived so by the council actually made their boldness even more stark. Because here you had common people speaking like they knew what they were talking about. And there was no, there was, there was no fallback where, they could, where, they, where these, this council could explain why they're so bold, why they're so assertive, why they're so definitive in what they're saying. You see, being learned, having accolades and degrees is not a requirement to be an effective witness for Christ. It is not a requirement to be an effective witness for Christ. That does not mean that, that those things don't have any value. They have value. Of course, we know, as I said, the Apostle Paul was a man of learning. He was a man who went to the schools and was recognized by this, these very people, probably contemporaneously with what's ha- what we're reading here. He just hasn't been converted yet. He hasn't been saved yet. But he was recognized, and he was a man of learning. And, and that, that fact, the fact that Paul was a man of learning, and then he got, he got saved has its own set of benefits different from this. But what you have here is you have common men without learning whose 
ignorance and lack of learning actually made their boldness more stark. You know, it's good that the Lord can use people that are common and plain for His purposes, for His honor and His glory. Because you know what that means? That means every person in here can be used by God. And no lack of understanding or lack of education or whatever the case might be is a hindrance if we're submitted to do the will of God. The Lord can use any person. In fact, the common, remember, the common people were the people that heard the Lord most gladly. And it was those of education and the pride that came along with that that blinded their minds. But notice their boldness. The word bold, the, to, to have boldness, it means, it means daring. It means to be courageous. Boldness is contrasted with fearfulness or timidity. Why were Peter and John bold? Ponder that a second. Why were Peter and John bold? It's, it's very simple. It's not a deep theological question. They were bold because they had been with Christ. And they knew because of that that the things they said were true. They had witnessed His resurrection. They had walked with Him. They touched Him. They felt Him after His resurrection. They knew that He was alive. They watched Him ascend from the top of the Mount of Olives up to, back to heaven. They watched it with their own eyeballs. They knew that what they were saying was a fact. They might not, they might not have very much learning, book knowledge, and, and learning from, from schools, but they had personal and intimate knowledge of Christ. But they were also bold because they had a, what they were doing, preaching the gospel, they had a mandate from Christ Himself to do it. Jesus Himself on multiple occasions, as we've already studied, told them to preach. So they, they have a mandate from the Lord Himself. You know, in the Lord, the Bible says in John 7 that the, Jesus Himself spoke with boldness. Peter and John were very bold because they were willing to speak. Of course, uh, talking about the Sadducees and the, the problem they had with the resurrection, they were bold because they were willing to, to speak to a group of high officials and were willing to say things that they knew full well would not be well received. But yet they did it anyhow. They were not backed down by intimidating circumstances. And you know what? That's often that's what we need, boldness. Because not every listen, not everybody's going to be friendly to, to what you have to say about the Lord. You're going to need some courage. And you're going to need some, uh, some boldness from the Lord to not be too timid and back off or cut short or put maybe in favorable terms things that ought to be spoken directly. Because we do people a lot of harm by not speaking directly to what, they, to what their needs are. Not speaking plainly about the gospel. In fact, who was it, Brother... Was it Ari? Yeah, it was Brother Ari yesterday when we were... Uh, we were out evangelizing, and Brother Ari met someone who was involved in an in a abominable lifestyle, put it like that. And that person, that lady, asked him directly what, what, what? No, no, she didn't. Oh, it wasn't you. Who was it? Who was on the other side of the road? I can't remember. Anyway, someone asked, asked him directly what the, uh, what the, 
what our church's position was on those issues, the issues of homosexuality. It does, it, does no, it does no good to anyone to hide it. It does no, no good to anyone to say, well, you know, we love everybody. That's not the question. That's not the question. You can say the truth with, a, with an attitude that shows compassion, but, but you refusing to speak the truth, our refusing to speak the truth plainly does them no good. In fact, many of those people, many of those people just want somebody to tell them plainly, even if they don't like it. You say, well, that's counterintuitive. Yeah, it is. But that's exactly, and in fact, that person, I, I, it's going to drive me crazy. I, I, I could have sworn it was Brother Ari, but it must Thank you. Thank you. See, I had in my mind it was on the other side of the road, but then I was like, you're with me on that side. <laughs> anyway, Brother Mark gave him the, just told him plainly, right? Now, did Brother Mark need a little bit of boldness to do that? He, I mean, you knew that they probably weren't going to like what you had to say, right? I mean, that, that was in his mind already. But does he say, oh, well, you know, well, you know, I mean, we, you know, uh, you know. Is that what we do? No. Again, this is not having a bad attitude, but this is just speaking plainly. Boldness, boldness, boldness. Boldness comes from this, and you can see it in the text here. Boldness comes from having personal knowledge of the truth of Scripture. Now, how, does that, how, is that, how is that contrasted from the knowledge that these people respect? These people respect book knowledge. In fact, there's one place in the scripture where the people of learning, the scribes and the Pharisees, the Lord said, uh, not the Lord, but the scripture says that they, did, that they did not speak with authority. They spoke very tentatively, guessing about what this means and that means. The scribes did. Jesus was not like that. He spoke with authority. That just means he spoke directly to it and stated it as fact. And of course, we know our, our Lord wasn't rude or unkind, or uncompassionate, but that kindness and compassion does, does not mean that we, 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 we uh, cut the truth down and only give people part of the truth. That's not compassion. But we have, boldness comes from having personal knowledge of the truth of Scripture. That's, that is not book knowledge, but the knowledge of Scripture where it has been applied to our lives and has been demonstrated to us personally, that it's fact. We have tested it and tried it, and it is true. You see, that's the personal aspect that these apostles had. They had been with Jesus. The fact of the resurrection was a fact by personal experience, not book knowledge, not just studying the Old Testament, not, not, not theory. It was personal. They knew it was true. But you know what? Just as we studied this morning, the fact of Christ's resurrection has evidence in the power of God in us as a believer. Have you seen evidence of God actually being in you? Of God actually working in you? Of God leading you? God changing you? God correcting you? That's, that's not just theoretical book knowledge. That's you taking what is biblical and doctrinal truth and saying, this is, it happens to me. It happens to me. God works in me. God has changed me. And so when we go and we talk to someone, we speak boldly because it comes not just out of, not of, out of head knowledge from a book, but out of personal experience. 
Now, our experience does not trump what the book says, obviously, but it's the application of the book in us. Boldness also, you you can see it here as well, comes from having deep convictions that your message is true. Not from being persuaded that you have the correct message. You say, I've seen this before. Someone says, well, I I know what I'm talking about. I got the right message. But see, that, that breeds pride. Being right breeds pride. But having a deep conviction that the message is true, that's not me being right. That's this is real. That also gives us boldness. When someone, and I, young, younger people that, that get Bible knowledge, sometimes they fall into this trap where they learn a lot of things and they, they feel like they have the correct message. Often later, they, they correct and, and edit that message a little bit <laughs> when they realize they didn't, they didn't quite have it all the way right. But they have the correct message, and so they're really zealous. But with that comes the, the arrogance and the flesh when they when they try to convince other people, it's about winning the argument. And then lastly, boldness comes from being thoroughly right with God. If you look at verse 8, what does the Bible say? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the, we'll talk about this later. I hope to do a study on this within our study in Acts. But being filled with the Spirit of God, if it means anything, it means total yieldedness to God, such that God is in total control of you. You can't do that unless you're right with God. So let, me, let me tell you something. If you want to be bold in your faith and you want to talk not just about the gospel, although definitely about the gospel at your work or school, among your friends or, or wherever, but, but even, about, even about biblical issues where you might be questioned or you might talk to someone. You know, sometimes people ask you, they know you're a Christian, they ask you questions. Listen. If you've got sin in your life, it will suck that boldness right out. You will will tuck your tail between your legs and you'll back away in fear and timidity. You know why? Because you ain't right with God. You got sin in your life. It sucks it right out. We go out, listen, we go out evangelizing, telling people about Jesus. We need to make sure we're right with God, (laughs) right? We need to deal with whatever sin the Lord has put His finger on in our life and don't leave that thing hanging. Deal with it. I just want to ask you, do you exhibit boldness when you talk about the Lord to others? When you talk about the Lord and your relationship to Him, when you talk about the Lord's, the truth of the Scripture, do you show boldness or equivocation, hesitancy? Do you try to dodge or hide the Lord from the conversation or maybe trim the truth down so it's a little more easy, a little easier to swallow? Do you speak to the Lord, speak of the Lord to others? And if so, do you do so with clarity and directness or with shyness and timidity? Now look at this, verse 13. So the Lord used their ignorance. They couldn't explain away why these men were so assertive and definitive about what they were saying. No, Jesus is alive. This man is healed because of Jesus. And furthermore, pivot, remember this morning, pivot, neither is there salvation in any other. Verse 12, for there is none other the name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is the truth. 
That's what these common folk without all this book knowledge and, and, and accolades and learning are saying. And they're like, whoa, we're not used to dealing with con- you, I, I, Having been a, a missionary in a place with a culture that's much more like this, it's, you know, we think of, we think of our leaders, like if you, I've met the governor of, at, at uh, Upstate Granite, I met the governor of South Carolina, Henry McMaster. I didn't walk up to the governor like this. Oh, governor. You know, beggarly. No, no, no. I walked up to him, my shoulders rolled back, shook his hand, looked him in the eye. Americans do that, but that's not true everywhere. <laughs> when you, in, in, in Cambodia, when you meet, when someone meets an Oknya or an Aikutnam or one of these honorific titles like that, all these uppity people and they get these titles because they've given so much money or they're part of the government or whatever. These people, they, they come up, their head bowed, bowing down like this, won't look at him in the eye. This is the way they do. Common people do not assert themselves boldly with people of, of importance. It doesn't happen. That's why this stands out. They have a mandate, and they know what they're saying is true. And they've got evidence. The man healed. So this council could not say, oh, well, these guys are men of learning. This is why they're bold. Oh, no, no, no. The fact that they were not men of learning was like, Whoa, gave them pause. And the result was they took knowledge of them. That means they recognized, they noticed, they observed that they had been with Jesus. You see, to the apostles, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ was personal. They had not been taught in the school but they had personal experience with Christ. They had been taught doctrine and applied it with Him personally. See, and that was reflected in their life. I hope that you believe what you believe, not because of a catechism, but because you've seen the Scripture say it, you have received it, and having received it, acted upon it, and, sh- and, and been been convinced, not just from the text, but from the text combined with your personal experience, that it's true. And the evidence, I trust, is in you also. Because only then are people going to recognize there's something about that. I, I can't explain it, but just like I said this morning, they say Jesus saved them, born again, whatever, but they're different. They're different. They're not like everybody else. And it has nothing to do whatsoever with making us look good or anything like that. It's, the, it's, it's people that don't know the Lord recognizing an undeniable fact of our personal knowledge of Christ. We should not have just book knowledge of Christ. We should have personal knowledge of Christ. And that comes from knowing Him, walking with Him, Praying to Him, hearing Him answer, seeing Him lead us, seeing Him correct us even at times. And this kind of learning, this kind of knowledge, there is no substitute for it. It's so funny. Sometimes I see videos of these really smart people with doctorates, multiple doctorates, and they describe religion. And even at Furman up here, they have a department of theology and they have Doctors of philosophy that teach religion. This goes right over the head. 
They have so much learning and no personal knowledge of Christ at all. Look at verse 14. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. The power, as I said this morning, just very quickly uh, repeated, the power of a resurrected Christ was undeniable. This man is healed because Jesus is alive. How could they argue with that? (laughs) The people who are responsible, now we know Peter and John were not responsible, but the people who the Lord used, who they themselves disclaim any power whatsoever, (laughs) Jesus did this because he's alive. That's what they said. How could they argue with his evidence? As I said, these men had personal experience with Christ as after his resurrection. They saw him. The lame man had been healed. That had been healed evidence Christ's resurrection. What can you say? But you, get, you keep reading. Verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. I love these little parts because you see, how do we know what they said? Think about it. Who was in that meeting? Peter and John certainly weren't in this meeting. Do you think these important people, these doctors of the law in this council, are going to let them know what they said behind closed doors? Oh, no, 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 no. So how do we know? Why is it in the Bible? I have no idea. Of course, God knew what they were saying, and somehow God conveyed that to Luke when he was writing Acts. But there are a few times in the Bible where you see these little private conversations that I guess one of God's little birds told him or something. Heard, well, maybe it was a spider or a fly on the wall and heard everything and reported it to, to Luke. I have no idea, but several. T- I, I love these little conversations because it gives us such insight into what's going on in the heart and mind of these people listening, and it really gives us instruction. It says, here's what they said, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, number one. The man was truly healed. And those that did it said Jesus did it. And this is not just some common thing. I mean, if I, if, Miss Karen, if I gave you a $10 bill and I said Jesus gave you a $10 bill, I mean, you could be like, well, okay, whatever. But if you're, if you're almost dying and I, you know, and, 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 and we have something like this happening, you're, you know, you can't say, well, Brother Adam didn't. You can't say that. These men are saying Jesus did it. But notice, so so they're acknowledging the facts. Verse 16, saying, or I read that already. Verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Verse 18, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Despite the, despite the fact of the undeniable evidence, they would not acknowledge it. Now take this as a lesson. You can convince somebody of the truth intellectually, but it takes a lot more than an intellectual persuasion to persuade someone of the truth of the gospel. You can argue circles around them. Their head can be spinning but if their heart is not affected, they will not, will not repent. They will not turn from their way. It will not happen. 
That's why we say, that's why you have to understand that apologetics, that's the, the, the idea of you know, you are making arguments and convincing people of truth using arguments. It has benefit, but it has limitations as well. Even with evidence, even with proof, people will still fight against it. Despite the evidence, they'll fight against it, both outwardly and inwardly in their own mind and heart. But notice, what did the leaders want them to stop doing? Again, we go back to the idea of healing. Remember, the healing was not the main event. The gospel was the main event. We don't want to get stuck on healing. These, this this, uh, this uh, council could, could have cared less, could not have cared. i got to get that right, Ms. Ms. Aguilar. This council could not have cared less about them healing people. That was not the issue at all. It was not their healing meeting. It was Jesus. Because that's what they were preaching. That's what it was about. The healing was just a confirmation of the preaching, but really the preaching is what really got, got under their skin. They wanted them to stop talking about Jesus. They wanted to suppress the gospel. Verse 19, But Peter answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Notice that, that phrase, in the sight of God. Whether it be right, in the sight of God. You know, this, this is an essential question. Is it right in the sight of God? Not just about this issue, but all issues. It's an essential question for all decisions. And we know that the, the apostles here, Peter and John, did not obey. But the reason they did not obey is out of, is out of this question. Is it right in the sight of God? Where you go, what you do, how you live, what you do, what you don't do, however that turns out, the question you have to ask yourself is, is this right in the sight of God? Not in the sight of brother, sister, not people that see me, people that don't see me. Can I hide it? What will it do to my reputation? How will it affect my finance? No, 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 no. Is it right in the sight of God? That is all that matters. That is it. You know what? That has nothing to do with what other people see. Sometimes you can do what's right in the sight of God and people think ill of you. Sometimes you can do right in the sight of God and nobody in the world knows but you and God. That's okay. In some ways, and most, most of the time, that's preferred. But you've got to ask the question. That This is... You see, this question, was it right in the sight of God, was what drove Peter and John to disobey this command. And you see, notice this, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Notice they're saying, we're listening to God, but who was it that told them to preach? Come on now. Who was it specifically that told them to preach? It was Jesus they call Jesus God right here. Jesus is the one told them to preach, and they call him God. But then you get to the issue of civil disobedience. Civil disobedience. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time, so we're going to kind of fly through this. And... Because this is what they did. Civil, referring to the, to the society, to the government, they disobeyed. 
So I, there's a few principles in Scripture, and, you know, it might be because this is not the only time they'll exercise civil disobedience. Uh, chapter 5 is another time they do it uh, on pain of even worse punishment than this. But there are a few principles in Scripture about civil disobedience. The first one, if you're writing them down, the first one is this. The power that is exercised by civil government has been established by God. In other words, there is no power, there is no exercise of authority and rule outside of what God has given. This is what we call direct authority versus delegated authority. God has delegated His power to people that are not God, human beings, in the form of government, in the form of family, in the form of bosses, in the form of, at this time, masters and slaves, in the form of masters, in the form of all different, you know, a school setting, teachers. Those are all different uh, echelons or, or stratum of authority that God has established. But that authority is all derived from God's power. God is the ultimate authority. So you can't look at those things and just thumb your nose up at them. That would be wrong, and that'll get you into trouble. And you know what? Those that have this authority, this delegated authority, oftentimes they, they do a lot of things that maybe exceeds what is right, their rightful authority. And they have a lot of liberty to do those things. Teachers, you go into a classroom, a teacher can tell you where to sit, where not to sit, when to talk, when not to talk. Well, you're, you're not giving me my freedom of speech. You don't have freedom of speech in your classroom. Be quiet, right? We Americans, listen, we get, we get, there is a point at which being an American and the psyche that goes with being an American collides with this right here. Number two, oh, by the way, that power includes taxation. In fact, the power of civil government, that authority in Romans chapter 13, is directly applied to them taking our money. And God says, give it whatever they tell you to give. Now, don't give them any more than what they tell you to give. But if they demand it, we have to give it. Well, they're going to use it for abortion. That's not your problem. That's God's business for which, and that's a problem they will give an account for. But that does not provide us an excuse for civil disobedience, for God has clearly commanded us in that matter. Number two, remember we talked about direct authority versus delegated authority. Delegated being where God gives authority to men to do things. Direct authority means it comes directly from God himself. That's this, okay? Number two, the direct revelation of God's word is the highest is of highest superiority in the hierarchy of power. Doesn't matter if you're talking about a classroom, your boss at work, your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad. God's word is the highest because it came directly from him. It supersedes every other authority. And that's what they say. Look back at our text in verse number 19. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God. You see, they got this command directly from the Lord. It wasn't delegated. Jesus gave it to him himself. And so that was superior to every other consideration. That's why they're disobeying. See, the problem is at this point, power drunken civil leaders, what they want, and I experienced this in the Marine Corps, 
and various other times, police officers sometimes, power drunken civil leaders want unquestioned and absolute submission from Christians in all circumstances. And we can't provide that ever. There is never a time when a Christian can give any person, any human being on earth, unquestioned, absolute submission in all cases. Did you know that? Because we have, as a priest of God, that's good Bible and Baptist doctrine, right? Each one of us are priests of God. Each one of us has the scripture. We look at it, we read it. We are responsible to God personally for what this direct revelation says. No one, no one has direct, has, no one has authority that supersedes that. No one, no human being. You think of your job, uh, you're with your boss, your husband if you're a lady, uh, your teacher, a parent. These authorities are not God's supreme authority. You know, I think of some of the difficult issues on the mission field. You know, you have a kid that, that gets saved, that believes in Christ and wants to come to church, but, which is something God wants them to do. But then mom and dad don't want them to go to church, don't want them to believe in Christ, don't want them to have anything to do with it. And, and that creates a very unpleasant quagmire. It's a difficult problem to deal with. And even in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, if man love father or mother more than me, right? Brother or sister more than me. He says, I am of the highest importance. Because every one of us will give account of himself to God. So anytime that God gives his direct revelation, this is the highest superiority of all power because it comes directly from God. Number three. A Christian civil disobedience, which is what we're reading here, is only permitted in cases in which the command of the authority directly violates the Scripture by requiring the Christian to violate God's laws. In other words, the standard is really strict and high. It's not, well, I don't like that law. Those taxes are too high. I don't like what they want me to do. No, 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 no. The question is not whether you like it. Pretty much everything the government does, we don't like. All right? Let's just put it out there. It, it, it almost all gets on our nerves. All right? The question is not do you like it. The question is does the government, the authority, require you to violate God's word? That's a high standard. That's a high standard. Simply disliking some edict of the state does not rise to that level. You think of all the red tape, taxes, you know, Cambodia. Oh, my goodness. Cambodia was, it was so bad. The things, the hoops you had to jump through to get things done. So civil disobedience is allowed, but it must directly violate God's law, God's word. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar said when that music was played, they were to bow down and give worship to this idol that he had made. What if, they had, what if they had bowed? We know they didn't, but what if they had? Could they say, oh, well, Lord, we had to do it. The king commanded The king, the king himself commanded it. We had to do it. Would God have excused that? Would God have excused it on pain of death? No. Why? Because they had direct command from God himself. 
and that king's command was not higher. You see, here's the problem. We view our country as a Christian. Again, this is the rub. This is where it conflicts. We view our country as like a Christian nation. And sometimes, because we think of it like that, we tend to think that because something is anti-American, as we view it, it is also anti-biblical. And that's not always the case. Sometimes there's really bad and harmful and poor policy that's put out by the government that is that is contrary to the, to the founding principles of our country, and it drives us crazy, does it not? Can I get a witness in here? Can I get a witness? Oh, yes. It drives us crazy. But that doesn't necessarily mean it meets that standard of actually leak, causing us to violate the Scripture. You see, that's a high standard. For instance, what if you owned a restaurant and your local civil authority required you to have gender-neutral bathrooms. You could have male and female. You, you had to have two unisex bathrooms. Essentially what you have in your house. <laughs> that would drive you crazy because you know what their intent is, right? They want to destroy, they want to destroy distinctions between the sexes. You know that's their intent but that's also not a direct violation of the Scripture. Else you would be sinning by putting one of those in your house. But you see, that's where it's, it drives us crazy, but it hasn't risen quite to that level. <clears throat> Lastly, whenever a Christian is compelled to disobey civil government, like we see here, because there is a clear violation of God's word, he must do so. He must peaceably, peacefully submit himself to whatever punishment might be inflicted by that power. Just because we say, by conscience, we can't go along with this, we can't do it, God says, contrary to this, I will not do it. That does not mean you're going to get out of the punishment or the fine or the lawsuit or the... the the conviction or whatever the case might be. That does not mean that. Just because we're faithful to God doesn't mean we're going to escape that. In fact, look at all we've been studying the last two weeks about persecution. It's Actually, it's the reverse. Now, that doesn't mean, you remember Paul? He, when he was gotten to a bind where he felt like he wasn't getting justice, what did he do? He said, I appeal unto Caesar. He had a legal route of defense, and he utilized it. He utilized it. But when that's exhausted, and that's, that's perfectly permissible, that's a legal route. But when that's exhausted and, and we find no way to get out of this, this kind of oppression, it's not to take up arms against the government as a believer. When we have stood on God's word and obeyed God rather than man because it, re it was required of us as a Christian, we must peacefully submit ourselves to whatever punishment is coming. Daniel 6, 10. Daniel goes and prays in his house with the windows open. Remember that? Knowing full well there was a decree that in which these wicked men in the government had used the law. They had used the law to entrap him, to persecute and oppress him, to kill him. 
He knew full well by praying with that window open, not secret, but openly, publicly. You see that boldness? He knew full well, and he knelt down and prayed to his God three times a day as before. But when, that, when it came down from the king who reluctantly followed the law because he had no choice, Daniel wasn't holding his AK-47, his AR-15. He wasn't barricading himself in his house. He didn't make a bulldozer into a tank and go through town and destroy the government. No, 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 no. He surrendered himself to go to the den of lions. Verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. It's just just striking. They would have punished them, though they had no reason to. The only thing that stopped them is a bunch of people might get mad. They would have done it, though, if those people hadn't been there. They They weren't concerned about their opinion. They absolutely would have probably beat these men to death. Full of hate. Full of the devil. This council was. How the Lord used just ignorant, just ignorant Christians, just unlearned, but people that had that knew Jesus. And how much hope that gives us. Just common people trying to live for God, trying to serve God imperfectly, which is all which is what we all do. And yet how the Lord used them. And he even tells us what they said in private to prove that the, what, they, what they were doing, God was using it. Let's pray.